Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget you can find out more about what we do here every day at officehours.global. Our first hour, always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. So truly, you drive this show by your questions. Uh, the process is understandable. You just have to go to Mukana, go to officehours.global. You will find the little links to get to where you can put your questions in. And by doing that, you will drive not only the run of show, what we talk about when, but how much time we spend on each particular topic. So the things that get voted up are the things we discuss typically more in length and more in depth. So your votes really do count in that way. Then we'll head into our second hour, and today we're going to be talking about video playout, the process of injecting video streams into other things you're doing. Once upon a time, that was often something done in, for example, conferences through hard tape decks, and they rolled video into big screen presentations. That's one little tiny sliver of the video playout universe, and we're going to talk about all of it today, how it's changed, what's happening now, and what are the popular ways to do it. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Right now, it is time to get into our audience questions which means, Alex, what have we got today on list? Uh, first question is from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. And Chad asks, I'm curious if John Preto has a favorite rendition of the Happy Birthday song as it is his birthday today. That is what we call around here a ringer question. We have a long-standing <laughs> tradition here at Office no, no, John, Hours. John, do you have do you have a preference? Do you have a preference? Yes, I would like the rendition of my birthday song saying in binary, please. <laughs> one two one one oh two no that's not Wait, gonna work is that like modem sounds <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> it's gonna happen now right. we're gonna we're gonna attempt to do this alex would you like to conduct just sure, for the sake sure. of okay tempo? so all right here we go <laughs> all right um Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear John. Happy birthday to you and many more. Okay. John Preto has been here on this panel more than any other human being in the whole history of office hours. He's been here since day one. We salute you. For those of you who watch, John doesn't raise his hand a ton and a ton, but behind the scenes, he is one of our more prolific and, and dedicated users. The, the number of things he does on the back end, you would be astonished at. So John, thank you. Office hours would not be what office hours is without you here. Thank you for being here every day. We really appreciate it. All right, let's move on to the next question. Uh, next question is from Jonas Yattel, uh, Dottel, sorry, in uh, Stuttgart, uh, uh, Germany. And, and Jonas asks, H2R Gear V2 has been released. Who, who, um, who has tried it and what is new? And Jonas, you want to give us a, a primer of what more details yeah. on this? So uh, John has uh, worked a lot on it. And I just created a couple example plans. So one of the features that I think a lot of people will really like is uh, left to right mode. And he <laughs> had it there like a year ago, but that wasn't perfect. So this one is way better. Um, you can now under settings switch from right to left to left to right. There's a dark mode now, which a lot of people will be happy with. Um, the design in general is way cleaner. You can now um, if you connect things, you can 
add up to two pins to even like do weirder cable uh, runs. You can add a label. <laughs> so like uh, if I click this cable, I can say add label and I can say this is 20 meters long and this should be the old cable because who knows, this is a expandable. And then if we look at our pack list, we'll see that it set me up one wireless cable uh, that should be 20 meters long. So this is uh, has been there, but now the uh, CSV download and all that has been really uh, useful. And then there's also a patch list. So now you see, like, I give this out to uh, my uh, engineers that are working under me, like, hey, here's a patch list of every single cable where it needs to go. Um, and one of my favorite features is if you say you build something with like, I don't know, four deck links from Sumiso that go into like a video hub 40, um, it's now way easier to have like a whole bunch of cables going there. It itself makes it way smoother. So now this an example of like 16 feet into a video router back into the constellation, um, you can share it with your team now. So there's a team plan if you're team player you can uh, build together with your team and share it that way um yeah but so is it fair to say that h2r gear is really basically like a cad system that is specifically created to do the kinds of equipment connections that we do constantly in these audio video systems is that a good description or would you expand on that and say it's something yeah. else so it is really good at that um, it also gives you enough freedom that you can customize it to your specific um, to your specific needs. So, like you can customize the custom connections, custom colors, so you can make this all color coded in your company colors and all that. Um, and the really cool thing is, it like why I like to use it. It's a sanity check as well. So, like if you, this is also a new feature. You can now drag a cable. And it generates a new box there. So if you like need to build fast, you can just drag it out, and now it's you can create a new box here. That uh, is just a new box. So if you say, oh yeah, there's like one SDI output that should go here, um, you can put like a zone around it. But the good thing is, like, it won't allow you to put an HDMI cable into an SDI cable slot before you have like a converter box between so like especially if you're starting ah. out and you build complex systems it's like a sanity check of like wait can i actually do this or do i need to bring more equipment and just like the amount of cables like you at the start you always underestimate how many cables you need to bring i always also plan my power cables with this then i know exactly how many do i need because that's also something that like you, as you start out, it's harder to estimate, and this really helps you build all that. Yeah, so that don't leave it behind check function of being able to take your actual diagram and know every single thing you need to make this system work, even on something not like wiring, but just a, a remote shoot or something like that. Truly useful. Chris Fanwick, yeah. you had some thoughts? Yeah, Jonas, do you know if this will generate an Amazon cart with things I need to buy to make this drawing <laughs> actually work? Don't think it does that yet. That'd be pretty cool though, right? Put on the here's the gear I own and here's the diagram I'm trying to get accomplished. What what's the delta between these two? That'd be awesome. Anyway, uh thank you for the for the talk through it, Jonas. That's it's it's a fabulous tool. I know a lot of people on Office Hours have used this and it's been developing substantially over the course of the last few years, and we hope it will continue for many more. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Jonathan Goff in Israel. And Jonathan asks, I purchased three FR7s for our new studio. 
are there any broadcast lots available that can give me a near-perfect broadcast colors, uh, only needing minor tweaks? Alex, start us off here. Yeah, so um, I will say that the most of these Sony cameras, the color coming out of them when you turn it on is pretty good. Uh, you may find that the, the blacks are a little bit more crushed than you're used to, so that's the one thing to think about there. But outside of that, uh, they, they're pretty pretty strong coming out of the gate. Um, the way that you're really going, I don't, I, I don't think that there's any broadcast LUTs, like specific broadcast LUTs, because a lot of it depends on a lot of different pieces of, of the puzzle. Because, for instance, you add those LUTs, and it really depends on the lenses as well. So the lenses all have their own, a little bluer, a little warmer, those types of things. And so you really have to correct, if you're really going to correct these cameras, and we're, we there are rumors that the FR7 will have more color correction tools as we go, as the year goes out. So it's right now, it's in a very basic state and you do need to use LUTs to do that correction. And what you want to think about is getting a DeMont, uh, you know, Chroma DeMont chart is going to be the easiest way for you to do this um, because the in the 12R and the 24R Chroma DeMont chart, there are boxes that go around. Those boxes will go into your vector scope um, and and be able to display properly if you are in a purely, uh, purely accurate broadcast. And you may want to go one direction or another, but if you want it to be absolutely accurate, that 24R and 12R will will actually draw a line inside of your vector scope. And so you, what you do is you can take that raw image out of the, ZR, the FR7, take it into, into something like Resolve, correct it until it does what it until it does what it needs to do through the vector scope, and then and then save that out as a LUT and then put it back into the camera. And but you need to do that for every, even if you if you have matching cameras, you still have to match all the lenses. Um, so if you're really talking about a, a true broadcast corrected system, um, you need you're going to need to to um, do it with it with a proper chart um, and and sync those cameras out. And I have lost track of the whether there's anybody else with a hand raised. Can you see it? Oh, there we go. Uh, no, nope. I think it's the next question. Okay, next question. Thanks. Uh, next question is from David Paskin in Miami, Florida, and David asks. Sony just announced the ZV-E1, uh, a 12 megapixel full-frame camera for $2,200. Might this be a good uh, alternative to uh, the Blackmagic camera if autofocus is important in your workflow? Jeffrey Powers will help us start out. Jeffrey? Well, Sony's uh, autofocuses have been pretty amazing as of late, uh, with, especially with like that FR7. Uh, just just uh, amazed on that. With that said... Um, there are some issues with the camera I, I talked about yesterday, like uh, overheating at 60 frames a second in 4K. It, you're doing 1080 mostly on on things, uh, uh, then you're not you're not ha worried about that. Uh, HDMI, it's you got the micro HDMI, which a lot of people have said that it's uh, it's fragile and can break easily. And then the other thing is that the app that you'd get with it. I believe it's the exact same app as all the other Sony cameras. So it won't give you like the color functionality that a Blackmagic would with uh, with an ATEM Mini or anything like that. You'll be able to transfer files over and they'll give you cloud access. That's pretty much it. Alex, you wanted to comment? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably too early to jump on a ZV-E1. Um, I think that that is a... Uh, um, hold on, sorry, we're having a little trouble in the back end. <laughs> Whoever's moving the moving the can't you moving the yeah. question has to stop so um no no that, that's this is no you're in the wrong you're on the, in the wrong question i don't know what people are doing here right so, there's something um, going on in the back end and we yeah, are we are so, losing track of that. I, sorry okay i just moved it back so whoever is um okay hold on a second here sorry for the breakup here okay so um 
I need I need the folks on the back end to stop moving. <laughs> all right. So like whatever you're doing, stop. <laughs> so um, all right. So uh anyway, so the um uh all right, the uh um we're probably gonna want to wait a little while. As as Jeffrey said, there is, you know, when these cameras come out, buying them right out of the gate, especially a brand new model, is probably it's a much it's the same sensor as the FX six, but it's in a smaller package. And so heat, as as Jeffrey said, is gonna be an issue. We want to look at how the features lay out. So I, I wouldn't jump right on it. Uh, it does look like it could be a huge camera. If they if they, if they can handle those issues, um, it looks like it could be a really, really interesting camera. But I don't know if it's going to be a great live camera because it's putting a big chip into a small package. Um, you know, and, it, and there may be some heat dissipation where you're leaving it on for two hours. Shooting something for your YouTube channel over a small period of time may be fine, but shooting something, leaving it on for, for two hours may be more problematic. So we'll, we'll find out as we go forward. Nigel? Yeah, I was actually going to say I leave my black magic on for like 12 hours and it's continually working. And my experience of the smaller packaging is that it tends to heat up quite a lot. And if the most important thing was autofocus, then maybe that would be the answer. But if it's the general production, particularly for those of us who are black magic based, that and can we stop the camera MV? It's very expensive. <laughs> That's unfortunately one of the uh, side effects of office hours is that you tend to see these fabulous tools and you tend to want to buy them. Uh, Chris Fenwick? I couldn't agree more, Nigel. Stop the camera envy. It's not good. It's not healthy. Seriously. Uh, my Black Magic has been on for uh, a, a year and a half. Like constantly, 100% of the time, a year and a half. All right, uh, Alex, you want to follow up? And the technical term is uh, uh, is gas. If you, you have gas, and that is gear acquisition syndrome. <laughs> so, so there we go. I think it's going to be studied in psych classes coming yeah. up. We'll see. Next question. The next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks... Uh, a new ZV-E1 has a video follow, uh, The new this is the same camera, uh, the ZV-E1 has a, has a video follow speaker fe uh, feature based on uh, a crop. Is this useful for Zoom? Alex? It's an interesting puzzle. I don't think it's that as useful for Zoom. I don't think a lot of us are moving in and out of our frame very often, and it is scaling up the image. So, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to get 4K somewhere down the road, uh, it is a 1080p, so it'll bounce around a little bit there. I don't... You know, I don't think a lot of people are moving where they want it to be centered. And I just haven't found the auto tracking to be great when it comes to headroom. Um, you know, so I find that it doesn't get headroom right. Um, it moves around. And what it does, I'd rather just figure out where I need to sit. That said, if you're covering someone on a, you know, someone that's talking and they're moving around in a little lab or they're doing something like that and you're live streaming, you only need 1080p, it could be a good solution to just kind of follow them around. Um, so it's it's an interesting, you know, it, it does, it can do a lot of things that are really smooth that would be hard to do. You, you would need a good camera operator to do it. Um, it, it does those because of the, the way it works. So it's an interesting, it, I think it's interesting for some folks. I probably would never use it. Uh, Jonas. I found it very interesting if uh, we look at the video, it look also looks like they are adding some uh, blur to it. Because like it looks like they are trying to emulate how it would look like if a camera operator pans the camera and you have a little motion blur. Um, mm -hmm. But obviously the camera isn't panning. And I, I agree with Alex. Like This also has, gives you no like place of uh, deciding where something should be. Um, I think what's going to be real interesting is if Sony integrates that more and more, um, 
like I've seen with the BGH1 where they use the autofocus that is pretty good, tracking from that and then plug that into external software and allowing external software to control it. And I think that's the first step to, in that direction. So they wrote in virtual motion blur. That's interesting. Hmm. Courtney. Uh, one thing for using it for Zoom, uh, it might do is it, it's going to up up uh, your bandwidth because the frame's going to be moving around. And so Zoom's compression algorithm is going to choke on a lot of that data that's changing constantly uh, if it's changing your whole frame on a you know on a frame by frame basis so make sure you have enough uh, bandwidth uh, out up to handle uh, a more rapidly changing frame because it's going to get less compressed uh, to upload into zoom and Alex yeah and of course zoom has a cap on what it can do so basically if you have a detailed background and you start having it subtly moving all the time, uh, you are going to see frame loss like that is so you're be much better off in a zoom environment as most as best you can is to not move the camera a lot um you're going to get high you're just going to get a perceived higher value and higher quality by not by not having that camera uh move around but i will say that it does appear that sony has we know that sony has spent an enormous amount of time and energy on creators uh, they have a creator camp going on right now in la um, they've seated a lot of folks that are doing it. They've taken a lot of notes. And so you, I think that they're probably becoming the the leader in in like social driven. I mean, they, they found a niche there below their pro cameras of we're going to own this one little piece. And I think they're spending more energy on it than anyone else in the industry right now. Interesting. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from uh, John Foltz in Sellins Grove, Pennsylvania. And John asks, here's a fun scenario. Record ISOCAM to an A10 Mini. Copy files to several Mac Minis in a, teach in a teaching lab. Use Companion to start playback from Jonas's Playout B. Scrape screens uh, to an A10 and the students practice multicam directing. Cool. Jonas? Yeah, we've actually uh, done stuff like that where we take... Uh... Like for us, it's a church service and recorded the ISOs or like a wedding and record the ISOs and then play it out through all the, I mean, I have a couple player bees lying around that I can use for something like that and play it out through all the different uh, playout bees and then even have our operators connect to it remotely. So they all have the stream deck and a multi-view. So for them, it doesn't really change. And yeah, we have done that. It's a really cool uh, way. Alex? Yeah, one of the things that we want to do this year is, is do some shows where we're not only recording the cameras, but recording the director calling the cameras so that you can learn to listen to it and cut along with the director because and, and, and hit all the all the bits and pieces. And some of the shows that we've built for other clients have been really complicated. And I think it'd be really useful for someone to figure out like, it'd be something that you can do over and over and over again. But we need a super source. And now we need to change these inputs. Now we need to run this lower third. Now we need to, you know, you can have very, you know, uh, detailed versions of this. Jonas, is there a way to uh, sync the playout bees or is it something that you, is there an easy way to just have them all start at the same time? Yeah, you can send an HTTP post or get to all of them at the same time. They should be pretty close. It'd be really interesting to have a, you know, a feature that had them look at, you know, a certain lead, you know, lead and follower system. So I hit play on one of them. They all, they all just play out at the same time. Hmm, would be interesting. For those of you who are in the question pool, thank you very much. We have a solid group of questions, but we can always use more. And remember, because of the voting system, uh, if you ask a question later, it has the potential to get voted up. But if you ask questions earlier, particularly all the way up to uh, the night before, 
everybody on the panel has a chance to look at those questions, and often we can do some research and give you a better, more concise, and more uh, well-thought-out answer than we might have otherwise. So try to get your questions in early, but even if you're just running into a problem and you want to throw that into the question queue, if it's a question that generates a lot of interest, that's what the voting system handles. So vote up the questions that you want to see happening. Let's go on to the next question. Next question is from Hasmuk Gajar in, in Cape Town, South Africa. And Hasmuk asks, uh, considering converting cookbook, a cookbook to into a subscription interactive ebook that can be updated with additional content, video and audio included in the book. In the past, it was suggested iBooks and pages is the way to go. Uh, thoughts? Any other options? Alex. Yeah, I think that the only one that really has the tools you need, I don't know what the publishing system is, you know, right now for tool for iBooks and uh, for from pages, uh, iBooks, of course, have, has largely been folded into pages. Um, there's not a lot of other great interactive uh, authoring tools for the kind of thing that you're that you're talking about. So I think pages is probably one of the better ones to to look at there. Um, but you'd have, really have to research, you know, how it publishes out to to, um, to to Apple's books. It will be that will be your vertical because um, no one else will be able to play them. <laughs> you know, so so, um, but I think that it is. Uh, I do think that there's an opportunity there. I really felt like Apple lost the thread there when they didn't. They had an opportunity when they released iBook, um, the iBooks and the and the development tools to just change the nature of what books were, and uh, and I feel like they they lost a decade of not doing that. You know, of not you know pu you know spending the money and pushing it. They got you know that what they did is they went to old publishers. This is a very typical Apple problem actually is to go to established folks and have them build tests for them rather than somebody that's going to actually do something new. And so they went to Pearson and Pearson did something that was horrible and boring and um, not horrible, but just boring and like non-inspiring. And they lost a decade and billions of dollars you know, by not investing properly into this market. And they wouldn't have had to try to chase the, you know, chase uh, Amazon to the bot, to the basement uh, you know, in books, if they had just changed the what what we considered what a book is, um, I think the next opportunity for Apple to do this is going to be in the next couple of years with interactive, where you can have a book, then you have you know, let's say some goggles, you throw those goggles on, and that book will pop out. You know, you can read something and then switch over and look at it, or just pick up your phone. It can say, you know, if you tap on this with your phone, it'll pop up on your on your uh, desk. And I think that they can start playing with some of those things here. But I think that Apple. Uh, you know, really missed the boat on that one. Hopefully, they'll they'll uh, pages will continue to move forward, but they have to invest in content. It's not just it's like just like making movies for their Apple TV Plus. They have to invest in people making great content that are that's interactive, and they have the money to change the way the market looks, but they just haven't figured out. They haven't done it very effectively. Tony Mobley, I just want to say to Hasmount that him and Dimyati need to do a show with the book. They need to do a show with the book and will enrich the book. They are amazing when they are uh, sharing the cooking recipes and demonstrating it. So I would say, please add that to the process. Uh, Chris Fenwick. It's like content inception there, uh, Tony. Yeah, uh, Alex, uh, to your point about Apple losing 10 years, um, uh, in the summer of 2020, Apple approached me about writing a book for Final Cut Pro. And um, I I said to them, I said, I, I think this is a mistake. I don't understand why you want to be here in the 20th, 21st century and use, you know, 
Gutenberg technology to uh, write a book. And and no, I don't want to do it. I th- and I think it's a huge mistake for you to like hold on to this old model of you know paper and may- maybe a few photographs. I said, however, if you want to throw all that out and reinvent education in a whole new way, uh, I'll. I'll stop everything that I'm doing. I'll quit everything that I'm doing and help you work on a whole new way of educating people. And they said, no, we just want a book. I was like, oh, okay. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, the, I I do want to just build off of what Tony said a little bit in the the sense that uh, with content, I think there's a real opportunity in a subscription service, especially to say, we're going to, like if you published the, a, an interactive you know, first, and, and there's reasons for different things. So there's reasons for the text. Like I've, I've had stuff where people do a video about how to make cook something. I don't ever use that because I need, I need to know what the measurements are and I need that to be in a book. You know, I need, I need the, I need the recipe to be in the book. Um, but I need the videos to understand how to do the recipe. So I need the videos to, to support that recipe. And then if you published it, and this is what you can do when you start doing a subscription service and a book that constantly is changing, you know, a month later, after you publish that that book, you could have the live stream where Damianti is cooking that, cooking the thing that came out a month ago. So people have a chance to play with it, try it, so on and so forth. But then they get to do it with the author and then and then you know and produce that whatever that is. Then the then that video could go back into the book. <laughs> the video of the live one could come back into the book. Uh, and a new recipe comes out. So you can be kind of updating this thing where there there is this kind of conversation going on. I do think that text makes sense from a reference perspective. Audio makes sense from a contextual perspective. If I can walk around and listen to something. And video makes uh, makes sense from a demonstrative um, uh, thing. And as well as interactive being something that you do in 3D, all of those things could go into a book that that really describes what those things are. And I think that um, Apple has all the tools to do that. I just don't think that a lot of people, the, there are pieces of it that are difficult, which is the, which is the challenge. And Apple has to kind of get through that. But I think they're the, they're the only ones that could do it at this point. They're the only ones with the, with the distribution pipe and the, the development tools, which you need, you need both of them to make it work. I'll just speak from the point of view of I've got an an interactive ish book up on uh, the bookstore on Apple, and I did it because I did a fourteen camera multicam shoot in the shoot in the early days when multicam was involved in Final Cut. So I thought this would be really cool to let people see the music video that resulted from that, uh, have access to the process of creating it. So I went through all the hoops to produce that book and get it on the iBookstore. And it was a complicated thing. And one of the more complicated things about it was things like dealing with ISBN numbers and the rest of the things to interact with the main book selling industry that is huge and has its standards. And it's hard to get around that kind of stuff. It took me weeks extra that I hadn't planned on just dealing with those back end pieces. And I think it's very much what Alex saying, you know, Apple decided to partner with the industry as it was and fit what they were doing into the bigger game out there. And boy, it was complex in ways that it didn't need to be that complex. Now it would be a much easier thing. But um, 
it's it was an interesting study. It reminds me very much about some of the work I'm doing now with ACX and uh, narration of of audio books. Um, there's a system back in the back end, and you are not going to change that system. You have to fit into that system so that everything in the pipeline functions correctly, and what you're trying to do doesn't mess up what others are trying trying to do. Interesting perspective. Let's move on. Next question. Next question is from Steve Bauer in Seattle. Uh, with all the variations of USB-C, wouldn't an OWC Thunderbolt 4 cable cover all of the bases? Courtney. Cover all the bases except one, and that's a fordability base. Because as you can see, that cable is a six-footer, costs you 60 bucks. So if you want to use that for just charging your phone, it's kind of overkill. So you might do what I suggest is get your USB, find a, find a company that sells the nice uh, braided cable covers in colors and color code them so that you're going to, uh, the USB-Cs that are good for data and charging would be like blue and the ones that are good for video would be red and the ones that are good for Thunderbolt could be the black of OWCs. Uh, that would be interchangeable, but these are and these are like two dollars a piece as opposed to sixty dollars a piece, and you don't want to be using a sixty dollar Thunderbolt cable uh, to charge your phone with. Jonas, I would say no. If we just look at the actual guidance from the uh, USB-C IFT that implements this, is there are all these crazy logos, and if you look at them, most of them you probably have never seen because they're walking through the craziness that is USB-C right now because it can have all the different power delivery specs. There's two power delivery specs. Then there's different wattage that you can get. There's different speeds. And what we'll see going forward is that uh, USB 3.0, 3.2, and 3.3 will all kind of merge into this uh, USB spec where we actually have the uh, speed and the voltage and voltage on the plug. This is the current uh, guidance that they have. It's going to take a, another couple of years till it gets released. And then that's not even including the whole Thunderbolt thing. Because uh, with Thunderbolt, you still uh, need a specific cable. And then depending on the spec, on the length of your cable, a Thunderbolt 4 cable that is shorter than a meter is certified for Thunderbolt 3. But if it's longer than, if it's a two meter Thunderbolt 4 cable and it goes to the spec of a Thunderbolt 4 cable that's two meters, it's technically no longer in spec with Thunderbolt 3. And then there's all these cables that aren't Thunderbolt but USB C, but can do Thunderbolt but are just not certified as Thunderbolt. So it's a whole thing. And you just need to figure out what cable you actually need for the device you want to plug in. And we wonder why things work and don't work, and we sometimes wonder why. And there's just one of the complexities, Jeffrey Powers. And and the reality is you should be using the uh, cable that, uh, most of the time, using the cable that comes with the device. Putting a Thunderbolt 4 cable on something that's uh, USB-C might actually not work. you got to remember that there's a little chip inside that Thunderbolt uh, 4 cable, and it's expecting to communicate with the device as a Thunderbolt 4, not as USB-C. So you're just uh, changing it out with that Thunderbolt 4, you might find that the, the device doesn't work. Now, if you're going to use a dock, that's perfect. Use a Thunderbolt 4 dock and then plug your, uh, your USB-C device into that. But uh, I wouldn't just go changing out the cable because it's a faster cable. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from David Paskin in uh, Vieira, Florida. And David asks... What are some of the most effective and compelling ways to use image, object, and or text overlays in your live videos or productions? Alex, tell us. 
Now I was trying to get it set up in, in the test here. I was, I was I was working through it. I don't have it quite set up here, but um, I've done whole presentations where I have the items just appearing around me. Now the thing to remember is is that there, there's a key to this. So you can have the things that you're talking about. So a lot of people will do this kind of picture in picture thing, but the the next version of that is to have items just showing up um, underneath you. Let me see if I can if I can get this thing to. Um, and a little trouble with my ATEM here to get this working. But the the main thing you want to look at is um, it, as you do this is to uh, figure out what the you know where the black is. So you can do a Luma key, and then you just have to take all the graphics and raise their black just a little bit. And that's exactly what David's showing there. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, oh. go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I did so it. So for those watching, I'm so used to hosting. I'm used to just throwing things at people. Uh, and I, I took Bill's job there That's for a right. I'll, I'll give it back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeffrey. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll speak on the, uh, the, the Twitchers and the, uh, and the YouTubers. Uh, they're, they're really liking these overlays that do a lot of fun things, you know, like, uh, like when, uh, when somebody uh, subscribes to the channel, a little pop-up shows up underneath. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the Stream Deck was made, so you could actually have that at your fingertips for your Twitch channels. The other one is when somebody's joining the stream. This is—it's I find it annoying, but a lot of people like it. It just puts their little their little icon in a box, and then that box just kind of floats all around the screen. And then when somebody else joins up, it it ends up in the tail and becomes like this big snake type thing that's spinning around the screen. So. Uh, you can get you can get pretty annoying with it, uh, but a lot a lot of people seem to like it. And I'll only speak from the point of view of somebody who's had to work with a lot of design press professionals over the years on larger projects, and they tend to go. I start with what do you need to show the audience? Where is the most compelling content? Where do you want their eyes to travel right now? I think it's interesting. Jonas, when he was doing the inserts with the very complex diagrams or the very complex list of different uh, USB uh, circumstances had himself as a small image up in the upper left and that worked really well we could see what his emotion was and how he was projecting but we also had a lot of data because the data dominated the screen uh, he didn't stay on that though forever because just seeing a static graphic on the screen for too long annoys people and they're going to be dissatisfied so all the designers I've ever talked to have said you have to plan what you're going to put on the screen based on what is the most important information to communicate to the uh, audience and what is the most powerful method of doing that. If somebody is passionately speaking, you may want to see them full, get their eyes, get their face, get their emotions out. And then in another time when they're just delivering information and kind of doing the background stuff, maybe it's not as important to watch them deliver that uh, designers taking all these kind of things into consideration. Every font size, every letting choice, all of the rest of that goes into how should we design the screen to have its most effective presentation for that audience. Alex, you had some more thoughts? Yeah, and, and remember that you can have a lot of graphics. You can have OBS or, or Memo Live or BMix do a lot of these things, but you can also do a lot of this stuff just in Keynote. Again, you know, just having an overlay. Um, so this is, a, I was doing an educational talk a while ago, and I'm going to try to get this to work. Um, so you have like this, you know, so you were, you know, you can have things appearing as you're talking about things. You know, and you know, taught. We, this was a while. This is years ago, <laughs> but but uh, you know the you know, but you're but you're putting all this stuff out and and showing what those, you know, 
all of these things can be, you know, just popping up around you rather than having it be something that's taking over the screen. So those are just some of the things you want to think about as you start to, as you start to build those. Jonas. And just like one of the reasons why we want to do it this way, instead of like just cutting to like a full screen slate of something is if you look at the human behavior, if it is for click through rate or like for just how long is someone watching it? As soon as they don't see faces, everyone is gone. Like for YouTube thumbnails, it's crazy how much difference it makes. Like there's a reason why everyone makes the funny faces on front of their thumbnail because it really works. There's a reason why we have picture in picture because we have seen as soon as we take out the presenter and there's no face anymore, everyone is gone. So like that was a thing that for our church live streams, we battled for a long time because in room you want to see the graphics big but you can still see a face. We as human are so connected to seeing another person's face that as soon as it's gone, it like we had people describe that how much more connected they feel by using a super source that has the face included with it. Because suddenly you still feel that connection. As soon as it's gone, there's like a certain disconnect in our brain that is happening that like disconnects you from it. You'll start searching for faces somewhere else. Um, yeah, so that's one of the reasons why you would want to overlay it in that way so you still have a face on there alex yeah we did eye tracking many years ago and it wasn't so much who was there but were they actually watching the video and we found that we lost 75 percent of the viewers if you just if you sit with a video and you just talk to them um, between six and seven minutes you have lost 75 percent of your of of your viewers if you put a slide up you lose them in 60 to 90 seconds is, is when they stop. They just put you off to the side and start working on something else. And so that was a very eye-opening experience for us and changed the way we made all of our content. And so definitely overlays as much as you can uh, are very, very effective. And since, David, you asked this, this is single presenters have a burden if you're doing a live presentation because if you... If you distract the audience because you suddenly have to get something done over here and you're not engaged with them anymore, it's difficult. We're lucky here at Office Hours because we have a lot of people who are engaging and are in the separate boxes. So it gives the host time to do other things when somebody else is speaking. But boy, if you're you're doing solo work, it's very complicated. Uh, David? You know, I spend a lot of time helping people figure out how can I do this easily. We remember we had a, a big discussion about multitasking, right? So how can you how can you do this easily so that you can stay as focused as possible on what you're sharing and on your audience? And so having um, you know using a stream deck or or whatever it is, using keynote even with with just live video in there so it just happens automatically when you press the next bar, the next button, the arrow button. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's challenging. It's also eminently doable with a little time and effort. And maybe even exciting to be able to do it. That's great. All right, we've been on this. So let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, uh, I own the Isotope uh, Music Production Suite 5, but Isotope is offering their everything bundle for $199, which upgrades me to RX-10 Advanced. Is it worth it? Alex? I think it's, well, I think that the retail, I don't know what the, uh, the upgrade might be 199. I think that the retail is considerably more than that. So if it's 199, it's not a bad deal. Uh, you know, if you get a great deal on Isotope, you very rarely regret having a lot of Isotope <laughs> plugins. Uh, I have 
most of them. So, uh, so anyway, so I think that there it's it's a it's a solid thing. But the most important thing when we get into what we you know gas you know gear acquisition syndrome is really deciding what are you going to use it for. Um, I don't buy equipment until I know how I'm going to use it. Uh, I will put it off forever. Uh, I don't buy things going. Oh, I might use that someday. So if I have a project that is generating revenue, then I'm then I'm in. If I if I don't, I wait. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from Paul uh, Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, my first camera was a Nichromat, and then I got a Nikon that I got at a retail co- camera store in Louisville, 1970. Iconic cameras. What were your first cameras and when were when did you get them? Nigel, start us off. So my original camera was a good example of uh, the complexity of naming, that at some point naming and copyright and brands are so hard you start repeating. So mine was an Olympus OM-1, which was a 35mm camera, I guess mid-70s, and I'm amused that the Olympus OM-1 is now back again because it's much easier to reuse a name than it is to copyright a new one. Courtney. Yeah, my first SLR was a Nikomat, not Nikormat, because it was really a Nikormat, but it, I bought it from Yoko Joe, a guy in Yokohama <laughs> that would gray market these cameras and he'd send them over and they had a little nameplate on the front. They were Nikomats, but it said Nikomat. And then he would mail you in a plain brown package later the replacement faceplate so you could change it out. But it would get through customs then because Nikon, of course, has an exclusive import agreement uh, into the United States. And so you couldn't really import them gray market legally. So that's how I got my first camera. And it was, of course, 35 millimeter film. I still have it today. I was in New York City and saw a Panasonic in the window. (laughs) John Fredo. I had a Canon A1, the black body, which was, at that time was the top of the line, 82. I had a 50 mil, 50 mil lens, and then I had a like a 200 mil lens with the doubler on it, which like was f-stop 8 or something crazy. You needed to have lots of light, but it was a great camera. Alex Lindsay. I had some version of an Instamatic, was probably the very first one, a, hundred, a 110 Instamatic, but I don't remember the brand of it. It was a little brown. All I remember is a little square brown box that my grandmother actually gave me, uh, you know, um, when I was like probably eight or nine years old. But my first real camera was a K1000, Pentax K1000 is my uncle gave me. And I uh, I learned how to shoot it all all um, manual and I learned how to develop the film. And it was a, it was a great experience. Tony Mobley. My first camera was a gift from my father. Uh, it was a camera that was brought back from Germany from World War II. And it was stolen from me. And I, my next purchase, my actual purchase of a 35 millimeter Nikon was my first camera that I purchased. I inherited my sister's Yashica Minister D. That was the first camera that I got to play with. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from Jeff Cohen in, uh, in Miami Beach, Florida. And Jeff asks, now Waves has turned 180 degrees on their previous 180 degree turn on their business model and bringing back perpetual licenses along with subscriptions. Who thinks this is a publicity stunt uh, so that people now rush to buy more plugins before they 180 agree again? Jonas Dottel. I, I think uh, the marketing department just re- um, went through a change and then they suddenly got the question. So now uh, what's the next sale? And they all were scared because suddenly they couldn't do uh 80% off sale every two weeks or for Black Friday anymore. And I think that has been like 
part of their sale. Like I get two emails a month with like, hey, we have these plugins on sale. It doesn't work as well with uh, subscription. And the backlash in the audio community was huge. Because um, a lot was... of people bought into them as a upgradable console. Like, well, we're, talk oh, we're talking about the plugins right now, but even like for an LV1, like a lot of people bought into that console to have a console that they can keep and upgrade. And if like you t you're basically taking a console away from people that didn't sit well with them. Jeffrey. I think it's a better model to, uh, to purchase and then uh, get the upgrades because how many times do we have software that when we open it up, it says your, your software is expired, go upgrade now. And then you get the upgrade price. I think uh, if they just went to straight subscription, if it lapsed and then you just completely forgot about it, then you don't care if, uh, if you got it again until you absolutely need it. So this, I think this is the better model out of everything. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that they did the 180. I don't think they're going to do another 180. Nigel? I think there are two battles, two forces battling here. There's the force of long-term business model. It is much better if you're ever to sell a business that the revenue be recurring than be one-off. You will get a higher multiple for that business. You will earn more money. It is really scary going from one model to the other because you're used to, uh, you know, quarterly, monthly, annual, huge sales cycles, and you've got to balance those two off. So here's the prediction. You will see this go backwards and forwards for a while, but be no under illusion. At some point, all software will be subscription. Alex? Yeah, and I think that they didn't really do 180, they did a 90 degree. <laughs> We're going to keep our subscription. Um, and I think that they're just trying to turn the fire off because the social fire on this was so heavy that they just had to, there was such a, it was so damaging to their company that they had to do something quickly. And so I think they did that. I think that what you're also going to see is probably no new purchases. At some point, they're just going to say, you can't purchase a new one uh, with, you, you can continue to upgrade and you can even pay those upgrades, but you're not going to be able to get a new subscription I knew a new, you won't be able to purchase them outright. Um, you'll have to subscribe for any new versions. And that's, that's probably, I mean, new customers, old customers will get grant, you know, grandfathered in the new customers will have to do something new. I think that that's probably six months or a year from now when they heal, when the wounds from this change heal. And it was really interesting reading the letter that that was a brilliant business class letter of this happened. We want to apologize for the disruption. It's caused the community. Here's what we're doing and how to change it. I just thought that was the, the PR people at the top of there did a really good job of getting that communications out. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Steve uh, Bauer in Seattle. And Steve asks, I want to occasionally take pictures of items of my, on my desk using my iPhone straight down. Any suggestions for a desktop stand uh, that would hold my iPhone for this purpose? Alex. The term you're looking for is a copy stand. So copy, there's a lot of different companies that make copy stands, but what you're searching for is a copy stand. And what, what it does is it has, uh, it, it has a platform that you can set it down. And sometimes it has something that'll press down on things if you're doing, this is really designed to shoot books. Um, it has a stand there. It'll have mounts for two lights that go on either side. And then it will have an adjustable arm that goes up from that stand. It's, on a, it's, a, it's like a pillar. And you can and basically put a camera in there and then roll it up and down to get it just framed just the way you want. Um, and that is really the way you want to do that. Like it's you can build a lot of other things, uh, Manfrotto, Super Arms, and you can get Noga Arms and all kinds of other things to kind of work it through. But if you're going to do this regularly, a copy stand is going to fix a lot of things for you pretty quickly. And since you're using an iPhone, we talked a little bit before the show about the fact that continuity camera as part of the iPhone 
camera thing, if you're turning your iPhone into a webcam, essentially, it has a little function built into it that'll take the wide-angle lens view, which sees your keyboard, and will unpin that and fix it so you can get those two shots out of that. So if you're interested it's, in doing it just with your iPhone there, it's I would, possible. I wouldn't. I, I would just say that you're not going to get the highest resolution. So you're going to get some kind of weird, uh, you know, thing that it's doing. In If you're going to do this and it, you, it matters, uh, just get a proper shot. There you go. Next question. Uh, next question is uh, is from Jack's. Uh, I'm sorry, is from Doug Johnson in Orem, Utah. And Doug asks, "I'm getting close to fitting out my home YouTube studio. Thoughts on which cameras I should get? Considering I need to buy four. Jonas, I do have to say, I really like the BGH ones. Um, they're a little pricey, but they're amazing box cameras. So you can put them all across your studio. You have uh, PoE and SDI or HDMI out." To bring it back to your switcher but then you have like an amazing app that allows you to control everything from like actually clicking menu buttons in the app um i think it's the best remote control app for a camera that exists that is not like a web interface for a pt set um and you can even now in the latest version you can have a multi-view of all your four cameras and you can click on them which switches uh to them in the interface so you can super easily like bring four different camera perspectives together. Um, yeah, I think it's a great ecosystem. Alex. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that I think Jonas is right that that is a great ecosystem. And we've done some tests with those cameras. Uh, you know, I think that right now, if I was doing a YouTube studio based on the experience that I've had, if you want, you know, from a fits into the entire infrastructure, and you're already using black magic, the six case may make sense, I would wait until NAB to do anything to buy any new cameras. Uh, I do think the Sony's are pretty compelling at this point. If I had the money, you didn't say what budget you were in. If I had the money, I would just get a bunch of FR7s. You know, um, we're using a lot of FR7s there. If I was going to build a studio, and you're just asking like, what would you get? If I if I was building my own home studio, <laughs> I'd get a lot of those or a mixture of those. And and uh, these these uh, um, you, you want to try to stay within the same manufacturer. So if you want one FR7, you want all Sony's. Um, you know, trying to mix and match your color between cameras is not a good thing. So um, whether it's a Panasonic or a Sony or, or Blackmagic, you want to stick with one, one, preferably one chip if you can, um, it, but definitely one manufacturer for the color space. Jack, uh, next question. Next question is from Jack Cannon uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. And Jack asks, uh, uh, any update on the dedicated Mukana mobile app? The mobile site is okay, but I have a feeling that the app will be much more responsive. Alex, yeah, and and so where the app itself is really what what really works is the uh, th that I'm testing, and we're going to get out there relatively soon. Uh, is uh, mostly just so you can listen to it. It's still a web. It still opens up a web interface. Uh, building out the entire app to do what this one does might take is still probably a little little ways out. Um, but uh, but stay tuned. We're working on it. Next question. Next question is from David Brady in New York, New York, and David asks. Using uh, Blackmagic web presenters as our final outbound encoder to Vimeo, network on-prem can be dicey at best. If requesting QoS on the encoder, how uh, should that request be made? Uh, is it a source target or port? Um, let's see. Next question. No, I'm sorry. So Jonas. that's Jonas. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, it really depends on how your firewall or the device that you use to do QoS uh, wants the QoS to be set up. But what I'll also say is if you have a dodgy network and you're using a representer, you'll probably run into an issue where the um, 
buffer fills, the web presenters still have a known issue that, uh, especially with TCP networks that are a little dodgy and have a lower latency and response times where it uh, chokes itself and the buffer gets too full to do anything. So that's something if you know you have a not great network, I would look into either like trans, uh, transmaxing, uh, no, not transmaxing, uh, Transcoding? Yeah, transcoding it into another format, like on a small device. So yeah, like you can receive the RTMP and then uh, transmax it into SRT. Alex? Yeah, uh, RTMP by, is sensitive to uh, all kinds of return as well as, as send out, as, as Jonas is talking about there. Uh, you do want to open ports 1935 and ports 80. Those have to be opened and have to be clear in that area what i would be asking for is a vlan so you want a vlan of a minimum of 10 megs a second uh, i would probably ask for 20 and then go back down to 10 uh, in, and have it specifically those are the ports you need open but i would have it specifically um usually we like to go to mac addresses um you know for the device so that it can i can use it anywhere in the network i don't have to you know something will put ports in the wall like i want 2377 to have this um the problem with that is if you move around it becomes problematic so you want your device to have a have that opened, I would strongly recommend, as, as Jonas was leading to, is SRT, FEC, or Zixi. Um, you know, and what that's why we use a lot of the elemental links is because it's a Zixi protocol to the cloud. It's not asking for anything. It doesn't, you know, it, it'll expand and contract with the, the connection. And then once you're in AWS, you can do whatever you want. Next question. Next question is uh, from Tony Mobley in noon in, in noon in Georgia. And Tony asks, can can David Paskin please give a brief overview of Canva training from after hours for those who missed it? Uh, David Paskin. Um, I'm, I, I won't give a brief overview. I, I'll just share with you that we dove into Canva Create, everything that they announced at Canva Create. Um, I would say the takeaways for me were that the brand hub is a very compelling way to keep all of your information organized, to work with clients. Um, the translate feature is really, really nice. All the AI stuff is fun, but not really ready for prime time yet. There you go. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. And Craig asks, any thoughts on a new VR game not for broadcast? It is a comedic simulation of, of directing live British television shows where many things go wrong. That sounds like fun. Courtney. Sorry, I was, my mouse was lost. That he, something went wrong. Why would we need something like this when we can just be on office hours where things go wrong like that all the time? No, it sounds like a, a, a funny idea. Um, as a game, um, I haven't had a chance to watch it, but uh, it sounds like a, an interesting concept. That's all I can say. Alex, I, I did look at the video. Uh, I think it's the kind of game that you would play for about uh, half an hour, and you'd think it was funny. You'd show it to your friends when they came over, but you'd never play it. It's, it, it you know, it's it's a it. It just feels like another VR game that's just okay. That's all. It has less to do. I think the premise is a good idea. If you actually look at the implementation of it, I, I don't think I could watch it for very long. I could play it for very long. We had a lot of good questions. Today. Let's go to the next question now. Next question is from Paul Wallace in uh, Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, Paul uh, says, uh, calm down, folks. ChatGPT isn't an artificial intelligence, says Tech Radar. Why uh, do they say this? And why are Gates, Musk, and, and everyone else petitioning to put the brakes on AI beyond ChatGPT4? It's been an interesting debate. John Preto, start us out here. 
so this letter that comes from the Future of Life uh, organization, which is 90% funded by Elon Musk, is a bunch of clean show. It's And most of these signatures are falsified. And and Bill Gates, whether he signed it or not, is probably not. This is this is Elon having fun. Elon and and Tesla are one of the largest developers and researchers of AI on the planet. So you think they're going to stop developing all of their AI for their cars? This is just just clean show. Uh, Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it's a way to uh, you know uh, put the competition on pause to gain advantage for Microsoft and and uh, Musk's Tesla AI. You know, uh, it's G- chat GPT and all these large language models are not artificial, really artificial intelligence, but they are, uh, but they play one on TV. Uh, people interpret it as uh, something that has, uh, you know, that is dangerous and knowledgeable, but I don't think it is really, uh, the only, the, the main danger comes from interpreting its responses as accurate and truthful uh, and smart when it is really just simulating that. Jonas? I think this goes down a really interesting path of talking about what is general AI. And one of the really interesting side effects that we found by training large language models is they suddenly can do things that the training data set doesn't have in it. So like one of the interesting things that a lot of uh, research is still being done in is like if you train a model on cooking, suddenly it can also do something else that wasn't even in the data set and that is one of the side effects that is currently uh looked at and the the letter specifically talks about general ai which is an ai that isn't specifically trained on one matter but on general ai like general intelligence and i think that's uh going to be an interesting thing to see um how that plays out especially as soon as we let it interact with uh, our world and see how uh, it behaves um we already see it with chat gpt4 and how it be uh, how it's being tested that it doesn't behave in a truthful way all the times and it knows that it can't be truthful or it's going to be detected um so i think it's going to be an interesting uh battle alex your thoughts I don't think it has to reach general intelligence. I don't think it has to become something to, to disrupt a lot of things. And so I think that, that that's what a lot of people are looking at. I don't think it's going to, I actually don't think it will reach, uh, for a variety of reasons, I don't think it'll ever reach human intelligence. I think it'll process faster than a human, but I don't think it'll necessarily replace what a human is um, and how we do it. I think that we are much more complicated than uh, a series of processors. Um, I will say that the real danger is Sturgeon's law, which is 90% of everything isn't very good, you know, and and the the issue you end up with is uh, that that 90% of stuff isn't very good. And so you go, well, only, you know, people, if you're really good at what you do, you're not, you don't have anything to worry about, you know, uh, from, from chat GPT four, but if 90% of the people aren't very good at what they do, which is not necessarily inaccurate, uh, there's a lot of people that could be disrupted by something that could that could do it better than they can, um, you know. And I think that that's the real issue: is the disruption of folks that are already there that can be replaced by this. Not everyone will be, and if you're good at it, I think that as users, we have to get really good at what we do. We have to really take it as, you know, we have to look for excellence all the time in what in what we're doing because we won't be able to compete with something that can do it average above average all the time. 
Yeah. The, the, the disruption is the thing that I'm thinking about more than the capability. The capabilities are fabulous and it really does make things a lot easier. But boy, there are a lot of people working not at the top end of things who are going to have a lot of pressure on them to migrate or or find things changing out from under them. That's going to be a difficult thing socially. But we've gone through changes before. We, we'll go through this one. I worked at an A-Life you know, company 30 years ago. And so they were doing a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here. And the, the concern that we really had was that it was it was the computer can figure out a lot of things. But the question is, is that when does it figure out that it's just easier to, you know, kill the source? <laughs> you know, like, you know, and it's it doesn't have to be as smart as a human to come up with that conclusion. And that's when you you know, that's when Skynet becomes active. You know, it's it, it, it's not a it doesn't have to be as smart as we are to make the decision that it's that this is the way to do this. So. Yeah, a lot of plots of a lot of science fiction has has been directly along those lines. Well, we've reached the top of the hour, and since it's the top of the hour, it's time to make our transition. We are going to be talking about video playout for the next hour. And um, just as a couple of minutes of setup here, uh, you know, if you haven't thought about video playout before, it's really nothing particularly weird. It's just injecting video or audio content into a meeting or a show, an event, a webinar, a live stream, anything similar, any kind of audience-facing presentation. When you're adding video as a component to that, you're doing video play out one way or another. You have to ask yourself, what's the video source going to be? Um, where are you going to store your files and how are you going to get them in there? There is hardware solutions for this, and we'll be talking about those today. Uh, mostly now solid state, but back in the day, spinning disk stuff. Uh, you've got particularly play out tools. Blackmagic's HyperDeck has talked about a lot. It had a particular protocol, and it was a nice device for injecting video content into a live stream like that. And in fact, there is now the HyperDeck protocol, which I think um, our friend Jonas, who's here on the panel with his product, the Playout B, uh, conforms to that, allows people who understand how this Playout commands and system works to get that in a less expensive system. You're probably going to have some sort of computer or software as the host of this. Um, some of us play with video play out in the simplest form by just embedding a video in something like Keynote or PowerPoint. And when you get to that point in your presentation, you click on it and hopefully it plays out over your Keynote presentation. That's the simplest way. There are dedicated players. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of software. Um, we talk here a lot about the PC stuff, ProPresenter, OBS, things like that. On the Mac, Softron, VLC, even QuickTime kind of at the root level all did video play out. Um, so the other thing is off of the web directly. And I was kind of surprised here in office hours when even in our just regular daily presentations, if we're looking at something on a website and somebody switches to that website, Sure enough, any video that's embedded in that has successfully played out through that system. So those are the smaller ones we used to use a lot. There is video play out all over the place in huge enterprise kind of level stuff. You'll see it constantly at big concerts. Uh, courtrooms, more and more, I'm seeing video play out in courtrooms as people do evidence. And I was watching one of the big trials recently, and over and over again from a laptop, they played video clips to estimate from some of the uh, interviews with people that they had conducted a point in the courtroom. Retail kiosks are out there doing it. Art exhibits are doing it. Theme parks use it everywhere. So it's a big business. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And let's start uh, by calling on Alex. Alex and Jonas both to talk about their point of view on playouts. Yeah, I think that it was funny when you talk about courtrooms. Uh, one of the cases I worked on in the 90s, I, I, would, I did legal graphics for a little while. And 
And uh, we built it all around. I think it was Visual Basic. And we had all these videos that I, I only had to worry about the videos. We put all these videos up, but there's hundreds of videos for the for the lawyers to look at. And we used serial, serial, um, uh, barcodes. And so they had a little book and they just open up the book and they just roll the barcode and it would it would play out the video for the jury. And, uh, and, and it was pretty impressive. We actually settled because of it, because the, it was so the, the other side realized that they were just toast, you know, like they, they were, this, this wasn't going to work and they just settled. Um, and, uh, but the, uh, and what that points to is how important the interface is and how do you do it? So there's a couple things you want to look at. One is, um, you know, how reliable is it going to be? So, you know, as you move to the hardware ones, you tend to get more reliability, but they tend to be a lot more finicky. So they want things in a certain format. They want things in a certain, you know, uh, frame rate. They want things, in a, you know, to play out, but they tend to play out when you tell them to play out. They tend not, they not always, <laughs> but they tend to do. And, and the thing you're looking for in reliability is the frame rate, the resolution, the stability, all those things are there. And you tend to lean towards more hardware solutions or, or software-defined hardware solutions like EVS, uh, Dreamcatchers, uh, HyperDex, those types of things. That's a big wide range of costs um, that's there. Three-play systems, um, those are all de dedicated to that. Then what is the interface? How quickly can we uh, get to it? How quickly can we play it? How quickly can we tie it into something else? Um, and so, and and then finally, the 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 talent who can use it. So, like for instance, at the top end, when you when you watch a football game, you might there might be ten or twenty EBS operators doing all all the replays. They they you you that is a a group of people that exist out there, and they know how to use that application really really effectively. And it's if anybody who adds something different, it's hard to get all the tools that are necessary to make that happen. So we use a lot of different, a lot of different tools to make that, to make that work. Someone's got an open mic. I think it's Chris. Um, and uh, no, it's not somebody else typing. <laughs> anyway, uh, so um, uh, anyway, so the, uh, those are the things that you want to think about as you, as you look at those software ones are very flexible. And sometimes you need the software. We had a situation a couple weeks ago, we had a project where, the hyperdeck would not play the video no matter what we would recompress it reset it up redo everything we could not get the hyperdeck to play it um we converted it to h264 and back to prores <laughs> everything we could do to get rid of the metadata and all the frame data and the hyperdeck would just it was just garbled coming out of the hyperdeck and so finally we ended up having to play out of a softron into the hyperdeck record on the hyperdeck and it played you know because the softron was playing it fine and and uh, and then we played out of hyperdeck, <laughs> but but the the issue is is that what that shows you is that the, a lot of times the software ones uh, like Softrons, like Playout Bees, like those other things are a lot more flexible a lot of times, and they can see a lot more there. So those are some of the things to think about. Um, you know, some of the other things is can it play out more than one video at a time? Sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. Can it play more than one track out at a time? You know, or audio tracks. So sometimes we have things that can only go out to the web or things that can only be in, played in, in the room and you have to replace the audio for what's going out to the web. And so we'll have four tracks. We'll have a stereo track for the room and a stereo track for the, and when you hit play, those are going out and we're rerouting just for that piece. Um, we're routing out the, the audio that only goes to the web so that we don't get into copyright issues. So those are the kind of things that we also have to pay attention to. And we're very lucky today to have Jonas on the panel because Jonas uh, is the father of Playout B. And so he lives in this space a lot of his time. Jonas, give us your thoughts. So one interesting aspect of Playout that we haven't talked at all about yet is TV Playout or Linear Playout. So where the term Playout is also used is if you are in an MCR and let's say we go from it's movie A to room. movie B. Yeah. Yes. 
um, where you also need to schedule that. And then, oh yeah, between those two movies, we now need to also play a certain amount of ads. Between the ads, we need to like put our disclosures or our uh, spacers that uh, make sure that we are complying with all that. So that's also a huge thing of like 24-7 play out um, that is also connected to playout. It's mostly similar systems that then are being powered by a scheduler, but there's also really specific systems for that. So one of the things, if you're looking for a playout system is be sure what type of those two you need and then work with that. Just because I've seen a lot of people becoming confused with like, hey, do I need this or do I need that? And then they end up going with like a 24-7 type playout system, even though they needed only to play one clip as a loop. And Jonas, um, we'll be talking about it more, but you just released an update to Playout B. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, over the last two years, we have been busy at rewriting the core that makes Playout B. So uh, today we released beta 2 for version 2, which is version 1.10 because of how our backend system works. That's a little confusing. And one of the things that came back with that version is we completely have reintegrated the Hyperdeck protocol. Um, we are more compliant now with the Hyperdeck protocol with shuttling and stuff like that. Um, and then there's like now again, a timecode view and a watch folder. So you can upload clips in there and they automatically get added. If you remove them, it removes them out of your playlist again. Um, and just like a lot of improvements over the the last version. And one of the interesting things about Playout B is it doesn't require a lot of hardware. I was shocked when you first told us about it that it runs off things like a Raspberry Pi. So if you have some even basic uh, hardware construction skills, you can make something inexpensive that is a bespoke solution for playing things out into a stream. Am I correct in that? Yeah, like, I mean, this here is playing on a Pi. I have this here playing on a Mac Mini, and then I have another thing playing on my uh, PC right now. And really it all goes around is if you open up the device, go to YouTube and you can play a 1080p video, PlayOutB is going to be working just fine on that device. That's kind of like the minimum requirement, which makes the Raspberry Pi sometimes a little hard to work with. That's one of the things we're still working on improving. But yeah, um, PlayOutB has the idea of like giving you hardware, like old hardware. I spec'd it out on like a really old Mac mini and it can just play fine. It's a little slow when you start to like maximize it, but then it can play, play the videos fine. Um, yeah. Well, it's probably better than having to buy multiple computers to do multiple playouts. Uh, Courtney, your thoughts. Well, I've been doing uh, video playback, which is a little bit different than one of the other cases that Jonas and Alex have been talking about, which, which you're talking about a live, a live situation or in a control room. In uh, doing playback for um, episodic television or TV commercials where you're in production, you're shooting, you're not doing live, but you're having to play back something on the screens, multiple screens uh, around the set uh, that's appearing on camera. So um, I developed my own software over the last 20 years or so in doing this because I had uh, unique situations where I would have to, uh, for continuity's sake, you'll do several takes. And uh, the takes will all have to have the video in the background at the same point in time, at the same point in the dialogue. So you have to make sure that you're starting at the same point on all the videos at the same time. And when they say action, they all roll simultaneously. So um, over the years, I've, I've 
came up with a whole suite of uh, video tools that do this. And this one that's showing here is my triple screen. And we were talking about this earlier where you have to play several several um, uh, videos back in sync. This uh, has all. This has three videos, and they all can be positioned on different screens. Three outputs uh, on a single computer, and you have a network control so that you can also sync several instances of this. We queue it back up to the beginning. They all have bookmarks that you can go to, so that each video is playing separately, uh, and can have multiple bookmarks. So you can go to F1, F2, F3 to multiple bookmarks. You can go to black instantly to, to make them all go black. You can go to a logo screen, which I don't have any loaded in there, so it's still. And whenever you hit the space bar on your computer, it, it, it pauses them and you hit the C key to queue them all back up again. So something like that, uh, and you can load different, you, you can sync up different videos. You can put a head and tail marker on each one of them. And these are specific needs for that type of playback, which isn't necessarily needed unless you're trying to simulate something like a security camera and... Uh, uh, or, or something where you have to play back, like was mentioned earlier, where you want to simulate cutting between different, uh, different inputs and you want all those inputs to be synchronized uh, so as if it's live, but it's not. And the software will do all that for me. So I've just been adding to it over the years and then I have, as part of that suite, I have uh, I, my main media player has, well, like I said, bookmarks in a single video so that you can jump instantly uh, from frame to frame to frame. Uh, any of bookmarks while you're playing. Uh, you can have up to 12 bookmarks. So I would use that for situations where you're simulating somebody in the scene who's changing channels on the, on, on camera. And their time the timing has to be based on um, where they are in the dialogue. You know, it has to happen. It doesn't happen always at the same place every time when they change the channel. And it has to match their, their action of them clicking the clicker on camera. So I would uh, arrange all the videos into a single file and put bookmarks at the beginning of each section where the channel is supposed to come on when they go from one channel to the next channel. So the, the distance between each of those channels changes can vary depending upon the timing in the scene. And whenever they do this, I hit the bookmark, you know, hit the button to go to the next bookmark, and it changes to that next uh, section in the file, which is the different channel. And then it changes the next section and the next section. And then if the director says, okay, let's start again at the beginning, I hit one button, it goes back to the beginning. So something, if you were to do something like that with a hardware playout, uh, where you would have like, uh, you know, guys that used to do this used to have multiple machines, like five different three-quarter inch decks all tied together with time code, uh, you know, Adam Smith synchronizer and, You'd have to wait for all the machines to rewind to go back to the beginning, and then you'd have to start them all in sync, and then you'd have to have a switcher there to switch between the two of them and hope that the timing was right so that when the actor gets to the point where he's supposed to switch to the newscast, it's at that point of the newscast, which is the point in the script where we hear the newscast come in of the, the relevant story. And it was a nightmare before that. And so after developing the software, it completely changed all that. And I can take, uh, I would take multiple little, this is a Melee, this has two video outputs, so I can power two video cameras, I mean two video monitors off this single PC. Uh, and it has uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in, so I can control them all over the network and synchronize them all over the net. And, you know, for 160 bucks, this, this makes a good playback device, plays back high def and 4K uh, without any problem. So that's what I've been using for the last... Uh, couple of decades. And as the computers got smaller and smaller, 
uh, it got cheaper and cheaper and easier and easier to do. And, and slowly, I've been trying to force Jonas to, Jonas to add the features that I have in my video player into Playout B. So. Very nice. As you can see, Playout is much more complex than you might have thought before coming into this. Alex, you had a comment? I just wanted to underline how important interface is. You know, I think a lot of times we we think about it and and how the feature set and specifically how it how easy it is to make things go uh, becomes very very important inside of uh, a, a lot of things that are within production because you know and and you're seeing the cust that customization that you know that Courtney is putting into a specific you know specific areas. So when people say, well, what playout system should I use? There isn't really a one size fits all. There is. This is the one I need for this. This is the one I need for this. And we oftentimes in, in a given project, I might have three or four different sources for playout that are completely different based on the needs of uh, at that moment. Yeah, it was pretty clear from Courtney's description right there at the end that what he has to do to make his use case a success is radically different from what Jonas working with a TV station on doing a full uh, day's worth of play out with all the spots and interstitials and station IDs and everything else. It's the same idea of playing out video into a stream, but the, the required tools to do each of those two jobs effectively are very different and need to have very different functions built into them. And so that's why Playout is a pretty complex subject and why we're, gonna, we're talking about it today. So I think it's time to dive into our questions from uh, users. So Alex, what have we got? First question of the, of the hour is from Keenan Campbell in Nevada, USA. And Keenan asks, has anyone tried the new Playout B 2.0 beta? Any great new features? What a uh, happy coincidence that it was released on the same day as Video Playout Day. <laughs> I, just as a disclosure, we've had this day planned for about a month now, yeah, so we didn't know specifically that that was happening. But Jonas, in, enlighten us. Yeah, so uh, this. I have uh, multiple Playout Bs here. Um, this one brings back... Uh, the watch folder. So if you go into settings, you can now enable a watch folder. It's not in this build. It's in this. Build. And so, does a watch folder grab a video that somebody puts in a specific folder, so folder somewhere on a network, and just automatically imports it? Yeah. So if I go here to the Windows version and open up, copy this watch folder, open up, up that folder, um, you can see I have the OH Framer in here, for example. And if I now uh, Let's say I want to also put this video there. It now put a video here and already has loaded it. But what we also now added is, and this allows you to like load in and out for like different types of playout scenarios super easily. If you delete it, it removes it. So the watch folder really is like a live sync into your playout system that allows you to be like, hey, I have a Dropbox full of clips that need to be played out in a random order or Ordering is one of the things we're still working on, but so right now it would be like, hey, I have 20 spots, play it out whenever after each other and stream it. Um, that's where this is really useful. Or for the Pi, if you have like large files and you need to transfer them another way, um, that's an easy way. I can hook this up to Frame.io. So like Frame.io dumps into the watch folder and like as soon as it's approved, gets in there. Um, that's new in there. Then the version two has the in and out points. Those have been improved, so now you can also like... Oh, so you can trim top and tail. Yeah, you can top and tail, and then you can move it around. You can also kind of edit. That's like, like if I have this, but it doesn't work with an image as well. If I have this and I don't want the start, obviously I could say, hey, let's trim out the start. But what I also can do is like, hey, actually, 
someone in the middle shows something that's not appropriate. So now I can have a, a duplicate of this clip and I can say this one goes to like seven seconds and then we'll pick it up at like 15 seconds again. So now if you put this to um, play next and if I play this now, this will play its couple seconds and then it will jump over to this one. Um, and in a non-deaf build. So it's a, really a last-minute rudimentary edit out some piece of content. Yeah, it's like, here. hey, oh, by the way, we need to remove that one person. Uh, we let them go yesterday. Can you like make sure that they are not in the highlight cut of people reacting to the news? Um, yeah. Makes sense. Alex, you had another thought? Uh, yeah. Is there, um, are you able, when you set those in and out points, are you able to see the frames that you're, like, as you drag that, can you have it set so that I can see the frames moving while I'm doing that? That's one of the things I'm still looking into, like giving you a second window, because like one of the philosophies behind it is right now, like we don't want to mess with the video. Like mm -hmm. we don't want to get into a place where like, oh yeah, let me prep this next video. And suddenly it changes it in here. But that's definitely something like having a second preview output where you can see what frame you're on um, is planned, yeah. And, and do you have any tools that will allow you to use some kind of controller for jog and shuttle? So the the HTTP API, you can hook up to um, a stream deck. I hooked it up to a stream deck uh, plus with the dials where you could like change the volume of the current clip, change in outpoint, change shuttle and all that. Um, it also responds to the hyperdeck commands now with shuttle and jog. So if you have a hyperdeck controller that should be able to talk to player B with a shuttle as well. Um, and I'm looking into like adding more hardware support like contour shuttle and mm -hmm. stuff like that but that's uh, still work in progress all right let's head to the next question next question is from john foltz in selens grove pennsylvania and john asks oh, what about sports instant replay can't afford an evs or a three play tried hyperdeck with the manual record playback wrong uh, move to softron m replay it works but it's not intuitive and i messed up a lot uh, any other budget friendly options you want to help us out I would say vMix replay is actually pretty solid. Um, it takes some level of building it out correctly. So like you need to have a fast enough SSD, enough space and all that and need to test it. But we've been uh, successful with running a vMix replay. It's pretty feature fledged for how cheap it is. Like with the subscription, you can get it for 50 bucks a month, play with it. I'll also say if you only run a couple times and you're failing after the couple times, you'll probably need to run it a couple more times. Replay is just really hard. <laughs> Alex? Yeah, I, I would. It's, it's hard to say I used it a couple times and then it, done, it didn't work as well as I like. I, I would also look at playing with them replay for a little while on, a, on probably minimum of 10 to, to 20 shows before you make a decision about whether if you're making mistakes on the first couple, that's just part of learning how to use a replay system. Um, look at what hardware might be um, possible as well. I think from a cost-effective perspective, uh, especially if you're on the Mac side, because if, if you're moving to Softron, I'm assuming you're on a Mac because Softron's Mac only. So if you're on a Mac, vMix may not be the right solution for you. Uh, and if you are looking at that, you may want to play with them replay a little harder. We, we have found it to be fairly useful for a lot of those bits and pieces when you set it up with the hardware interface. Jeffrey? So if you are on a Mac, uh, Wirecast does do a decent job with uh, doing replays, uh, but uh, I, I 
like the vmix over uh, wirecast if you're on the pc because not only the fact that uh that it's on a pc and it works a little bit better and i can put more more power into the pc but also because i can use the vmix controls on another computer via uh via stream deck and then be able to access that stuff let's go to the next question Next question is from John Idelson in Monterey, California. And John asks, uh, would the MIMO Rack HD be a strong system for playout with its high graphic capabilities? Uh, I don't have any familiarity with that. And I don't know whether we have anybody on the panel today who's good at that. Alex, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I think that you definitely could make that actually work. So, but but I think that would take a little more experience. None of us, I think, have used it heavily in a project. So, um, I do think that we would have to um, take a look at you know what the possibilities are. A memo is able to playback video, and I've used the playback system just within memo often. You know that that's actually one of the things we do. Oh, we want to insert a bunch of videos, and then some stills, and then some other things like that, and that's worked really well for us. So, I think that a rack version of this would be great. I haven't seen this specific tool, but. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't work. Looking back over the history of everything I've seen doing playback in conferences and things like that, it's really interesting because uh, things work at a level and then suddenly your video starts getting, the rasters get bigger. We all know that cameras up to 12K and things like that. And suddenly things that played back perfectly with a new piece of content may not. So the one piece of advice that I always hold to is that if you're doing any kind of playout in any kind of circumstance, whether it's the BMO Rack HD or anything else, is test, test, test before you go live and think that just because it worked last week, oh, you've got some two new files in there and they're both uh, Blackmagic 6K files that somebody rendered out at a high res, uh, that may choke the system and it may suddenly not work and you don't want to be in that circumstance when you have to be public facing. And one thing yeah, I'll just add, add to that is when I do playback, I conform everything. I And I got used to it because we were used to just playing things out to an EBS or whatever and setting in and out points. But I have, if I'm doing play out and, you know, hyperdecks are sensitive to this, but it just works better. <laughs> what is your frame rate? What is the frame rate that you're going to do your event in? And then I just conform everything to that frame rate. I conform it to the same. Uh, usually it's an Apple ProRes or ProRes. It can be ProRes 422 or ProRes HQ, typically. If it doesn't matter, it might be ProRes LT. Generally, I'm playing back ProRes files. Um, they are... Uh, they are all the same. Um, they have the number of channels that I need. They're all the same. Uh, everything's the same. And you will find that it, it makes a dramatic difference in the stability of your system to have all your files come in the same way. Um, and it, 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 we do break rank when we get something right at the last minute and it's H.264 and we throw it into something like Softron or PlayLP or other things like that to play it out. But very rarely. I mean, almost if I have more than 10 minutes with that file, it's going to get converted to to a conformed uh system that's going to make it easy make sure that i get what i what i expect i'm going to double amen to that i once had a project i was doing the rocky mountain emmys play out reels and we were getting things in uh, across the web from small medium and large tv stations all over the western united states there were so many different formats and so many different encodings and i went through and i was using i think vlc to do most of them but there were like five files i got and i was like what the heck i can see and, them but i can't work with them on the mac on the mac side of it i have two two apps which is well i have three um there is um, um compressor and then handbrake which is a front end for ffmpeg or we just open that we open the shell and just use ffmpeg you know and so 
Uh, and then you can have scripts that just say, I'm going to grab everything and I'm just going to move it all to this. But you, you just chunk everything through it. And if someone sends me 30 files, I just throw them in and they come out the other end. And, and that's what they look like. Courtney, you had thoughts? Well, I think if you're preparing files that you're not going to control the playback, I have to submit them to somebody else. Uh, be careful about using ProRes 444 or ProRes, any of the higher bitrate ProReses, because they may not be playing it back on a Mac. And if they're not playing it back on a Mac, a lot of times the codecs on Windows or Linux or whatever they're going to be playing it back on can't handle that bitrate of the 444, and so they'll end up with something that won't play back. Uh, so H.264 or MP4 is pretty safe. It looks pretty good. It looks almost as good. You know, you don't have as much control over the color or anything, but if your color is already set uh, and you're just playing it, uh, H.264 will work great. Uh, it's designed as a delivery format, and it will play back sequentially. You're not going to be able to do trick play modes like, you know, scan backing and for backwards and forwards. Uh, you know, frame at a time, anything like that, frame frame at a time backwards. It's not very good at doing that because it's a long GOP compression. But it'll look great uh, and in a compact format and can play back on almost anything, including a Raspberry Pi or, um, you know, less powerful PCs uh, that can play back. Jonas? And one thing I'll say on the whole, like, I got a file and I don't know what it is. One of the tools in developing Playout B that we also developed is this little application that you, it's called InfoB, where you can just drag a file in and it gives you all the codec parts. Because one of the issues we have seen with a lot of tools is like, they really need a specific identifier to be there. So like this will give you the field order, the color space. It's going to give you the bitrate, the profile and the codec stuff that you normally will find harder to see. And then you can also make an informed decision on what you need to code it, code it to. Uh, the Hyperdex are notorious right now to record not in BT709, but in BT2020, 2020, like in HDR, even though with an SDR signal. So like that's where uh, something like this uh, comes in and helps. Alex? Yeah, and to, and to qualify, you know, a lot of times I'm playing stuff out that has to be in some kind of higher, you know, 10-bit uh, multi-channel. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff we did last year was 10-bit, needed to be 10-bit with 37 channels of audio. <laughs> so, so the, uh, um, because there was a lot of languages that were all tied into a surround system. And so so the, so the those kinds of things, maybe the year before that, but those things are, are why we've kind of conformed to a, a, a package that we can put a lot of different things into at different at bit rates. So interesting things to think about. It is play out. It can be complex. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. And John asks, what special considerations should someone make for playing out to Zoom or Teams? Jonas is going to help us, Jonas. So when you're playing out to Zoom, it's fairly easy. Um, you can either use like something that allows you to take a playout feed and then put it into a virtual webcam. Zoom also has a native player that doesn't give you as many options on what you want to do with it. Um, keep in mind that Zoom doesn't do higher frame rates like 50 or 60, so you probably want to be in the 25 to 30 uh, field for playing out files. Um, also keep in mind if it's a multi-destination playout, what we often do is like to Zoom and to YouTube, and you don't want the people in Zoom seeing it 30 seconds before. Do a countdown, measure the time between the two and then add a latency to one of them that's um, like delay one of the playouts. And then also always keep in mind, what do you do when it fails? Because um, if you're prepared, it probably 
you're ready. So like having a slate and having a system um, that is that can like recover from a crash to a specific time code is also very important. Because like if you're into a three hour file playout and suddenly you crash and you can't scrub back to the time where you crashed, that's pretty horrible. Um, so yeah, those are the things to keep in mind. Then with Teams is also keep in mind there are really different modes on the audio in Teams. Depending on what client you use, they might even insert white noise on top of your audio. So make sure that you, um, we often use the web client just because it can also send 720p into a Teams meeting and it has less audio processing on it. And then with Teams, one issue we run into with playouts is um, make sure that you watch it on another device because often it shows you the local playout still being fine, like your local return view, but the other people don't see it. Um, and then with Zoom, one thing to keep in mind is the playout is something that is not a phase. There's going to be a significant higher bit rate that is going to be needed to send that out. So keep in mind if you're 1080p and you're doing a, like a company address and you show beautiful imagery of like, I don't know, woods or something that the Zoom codec isn't trained for, then you'll have a hard time and uh, run up to the six bit. So that's also something to keep in mind. Alex, your notes? Yeah, the, the all, all of what Jonas said. <laughs> and, uh, you know, really think about um, one thing to make sure in Zoom is that if you're for some reason using screen share, you just have to make sure that you're optimizing for video uh, because it won't it, it will otherwise optimize for res resolution and you'll end up with like one frame a second. Um, so that's really, really important. Um, and the the note that there's no reason to ever push anything 1080p into into teams unless you're talking to one person because 1080 it's 1080p for one person as soon as you add uh, one person two people total as soon as you add the third person everything's 720 so knock everything down to 720 to make sure that you're not overdriving the system um, because there's not you're not getting any any value out of that um really talk to people one thing that we do with all the graphics is we test it we if someone sends me a bunch of moving graphics and playouts and everything else we play it out with them looking at it on the other side of zoom um, because we want them to see what the frame what frame loss looks like to make sure that they're not surprised during the event and then super stressed like we have to make decisions about because a lot of moving parts a lot of moving images on a on webrtc is going to break up it's why we're building the youtube by pipeline that we're building is so that I can do playouts at a higher quality quality than what WebRTC will solve um, will solve. So those are it's a, it's a really important piece of the puzzle. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Josh asks: When selecting a playout method, what considerations about your final destination and video path would be good to take into account? Jonas, start us off. It goes from like what is the color space you need at the end. Uh, a lot of player solutions don't support 10-bit HDR, PQ, or HLG yet. Do you need multiple audio channels? So like, hey, do you need five audio channels for surround? Do you need like four, two? Like, do you need multiple tracks that are being uh, encoded correctly so you can have multi-language? Um, that's what I would keep into consideration. And then also frame rate. Check the frame rate. And then we haven't talked about weird resolutions yet. So like if it's not 16 by nine, that's also something to keep in mind if it's not a 16 by nine play out. Alex? Yeah, and, and you want to do the best you can to find out who is going to watch it and what frame rate makes sense for them. <laughs> because, uh, and try to do everything you can to deliver that output um, to the, the format that they're used to. So if you're going to play something out or, or do something, 
when you push it out, some, if you're working with broadcast, they may still want 1080i, you know, so, so you want to think about those kinds of uh, issues uh, before, before you hand it to me. What you don't want to do is leave somewhere down the path, something else converting that you don't have control of, uh, figure out how you're going to do it so that you can test it and you can ensure the quality. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. And uh, Tony asks, House of Worship is doing a, a play in theater. One actor will not be in the theater. His part will be a Zoom recording. Should I try to play out, should I try to play out be connected to the house sound system? Well, that is one way to do it, I'm sure. There's a, a number of possibilities and uh, we know that you have a pretty complex system. Uh, so let's get some ideas, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I think that it just depends on what the interface is. Most of the playout B um, uh, hardware, whether it's a Raspberry Pi or up, is going to have a stereo out. So you're going to have to figure out how to turn that stereo out um, into a, um, uh, you know, into into something that you can use. So they'll split that out into RCA, uh, convert it to XLR. Uh, the other thing to look at there is is when you're using something um, that's a little bit a more robust piece of hardware you might think about depending on what kind of mixers being used in the theater can you convert it to dante you know those kinds of things so that you can send it out without having to go out to any analog devices courtney uh one problem you're going to run into and i ran into this a lot of times in doing uh playouts of a character on a video monitor and when you're ever you're interfacing live actors on stage uh, or on camera with a played out uh, actor on tape or on video, timing is essential. And you don't want them delivering their line, you know, three seconds late or two seconds early. So you've got to have a play out system that can uh, set bookmarks or at the beginning of each line so that you can, if the timing is wrong, hold that video until the point where that line of the off you know, the person on Zoom is supposed to come in and deliver his line, then you hit the button and start playing it back right on cue. And then, uh, you know, then you have a next bookmark for his next line and so on. So you have to parcel out these lines to fit them into the live play because the other actor's timing is not going to be the same. Every time they perform that play, timing's going to be different. They may react to some, you know, a laugh or something in the audience and pause the play for that. So trying to fit a pre-recorded uh, character into a live situation can be quite problematic and you need to, to work out how you're going to do that and how you're going to deal with the timing differences of a pre-recorded character and delivering the lines on cue. Jonas? And if you use something like a Raspberry Pi, what you can do is like use two DI boxes or another form of isolator um, to get the mini jack into like larger jacks into XLR. That's how we use it our, at our church. Um, and like Courtney said, make sure to record a bunch of noddies is how we call it, just nods. Have them stand there and nod. So at the tail end start. So if the other performers go long or you go short with the recording, you just have someone standing down still reacting to the thing. Um, that's what I would do. Tony? Yeah, this is all outside of my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm still trying to figure this out. Um, I'm being asked to do things that is really stretching me. So uh, the, the, the reason why all of this is taking place is that the, uh, this is the one actor who is professional and he can't be there in the theater. And so we're trying to figure out how to, how to do this. So um, I was thinking that I would connect um, 
play out B to play. The, the system is a Behringer system. It's a, that's at the theater. And I wanted to connect the play out B to the Behringer system and then play out his portion of the video. He's playing JC or Jesus Christ for those who didn't know. Um, and so it's, it's at the end of the play, but there is actual dialogue from live actors that's going to take place at the same, at the same time, uh, lines going back and forth between the recording and the um, live actors. Tony, is it, when the character finishes a line, um, is he on both some kind of playout screen as well as voice, or is this entirely audio? The reason I'm saying that is clearly if it freezes at the end of that and there's no continuation of exactly what Jonas was talking about, him nodding or understanding or being present, it's going to look a little odd. Right. So the, the, the idea was that it was going to be video, but we might have to, um, because of all of the circumstances, we might have to make sure that it's all audio um, and maybe have some kind of, you know, as a, a, a God figure, maybe have some type of uh, masking or something and just people would see the image of not really seeing a person, but something showing and just hear the audio. Well, that, that theater is good at, at implying things as opposed to necessarily being realistic about it. So maybe, Courtney, you had some thoughts? Sounds like you're doing Job, the play. Um, I did that in high school, and I was the audio guy uh, doing Job, and we had to play back all of God's lines. Uh, and what we did is we had a uh, separate speaker up in the balcony of the theater, so the God voice would come out, and I had all of God's lines on tape. And so I would just play back, you know, a linear tape, each line on cue as it would come out of the separate speaker. So since he didn't have to appear on camera, since he was God, uh, it was uh, <laughs> a little easier. If you have to have him appear on camera, you know, you might look at not having that person on screen or visible except when they're delivering a line. So if you're cutting this play with different cameras, you'd cut to him and play back uh, his next line, et cetera. And then you could just line up all the lines uh, in a uh, sequential playout program that is designed to do a playlist of videos, and it would queue up the next line and be waiting for you to hit the button to play it back. And he delivers his line, and when you hit the button, it cuts to him. And you could do this with, uh, probably do this with playout being a play and a playlist, uh, and use the cues from the uh, uh, from your natim to cue the playout B to start the line on cue uh, when you cut to it. So that Jonas, might be a way to do it. I would save you a lot of hassle and just pre-record the end. Like pre-record not only that actor, but also the actors he's interacting with and find a storyline reason why it needs to be that way. Like, I don't know, maybe it starts with 10 months later or like, throwback or like making it look like it fits into the story that this is a different segment but i would just try to do it all in one like take that whole scene or part of the play record it with all the actors already so you have a one video you need to play out so you don't need to hassle around and try to fit the lines and yeah i think that would give you a more consistent uh, product at the end 
Lots of options. Definitely keep us up to date on what's happening and how it works out once you perform it. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. And John asks, what sort of pie is needed for Playout B? How does a person get started researching, finding, and purchasing one? Well, right now you ask Jonas because he's here. Jonas. So the pie that most people use is the Raspberry Pi 4, so simple box. Um, it's super hard to get a Pi right now. I'm trying to get a Raspberry Pi with two gigabytes of RAM, and it's surprisingly hard. There's this website called RP Locator um, that shows you all the Pies that are available, and this is like the worldwide stock right now that's not for crazy scalper prices. Please don't pay 200 euros or US dollars or anything above 100 bucks for a pie um and you see there's just nothing right now that's one of the reasons why we uh, shifted so heavily into other devices as well so you can use an old mac mini you can use an old intel mac uh, those should also work well supply and demand classic let's go to the next question next question is from dave kaufman in vancouver british columbia and dave asks uh, i'd like to use pob on uh uh, play out B on the Pi since I have too many laptops on the desk, but I'm worried that I will order the wrong one. Uh, can I buy a Pi with it installed? Jonas, do you have systems that you sell? No, we don't have a Pi system that we sell at the moment. Uh, and you see the Pi, it's just a supply issue right now. We hope that this year it's uh, going to open up and there's going to be more Pis. It lets you even think about selling it, but right now we can't even get a single one. Uh, so yeah, probably not the platform we would uh, develop hardware on right now. Next question. Oh, I'm sorry. There was a last minute hand. Courtney? Yeah, I was going to ask Jonas. Uh, I have tried, I think I'm going to tell you, I've tried the Windows version of Playout B on these stick PCs. That might be a good lower cost alternative. You can get these for uh, about a hundred, a hundred and a quarter bucks. And uh, the web-based interface should work on it. And uh, that might be a solution for you if you can't find any Raspberry Pis. And, and Jonas, do those work there on those on those little... Uh... I haven't tried the stick PCs, but most, uh, like I said, if you can up, open up YouTube, that's a good... Yeah, it's quad-core, it has Intel chipset. Yeah. It, it's more, much more powerful than a Raspberry Pi, so it, it should play it back fine. Which, which play back that? up to nine. This is a Melee... Uh, uh, stick PC, which how do you spell melee? M E L E. Okay, just want to make sure it was M E L E. Melee. And they also make they also make a new one, which I just got in two different versions uh, for the fifty one hundred five and the forty one twenty five processor. And this one has two HDMI outs, so it could power two monitors, and it's also got you know gigabit Ethernet and USB three and everything else on it. So it works quite well and uh, can handle. Two high def playbacks simultaneous. I mean, uh, two 4K playbacks simultaneously at 60 at 60 frames per second. Okay, learning new solutions all the time. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from Douglas Carmichael. For low budget situations where you don't have dedicated audio and video people, could Playout B be a solution to playing out content via MIDI from a audio console? Jonas, have you attached MIDI into this? Playout B doesn't have a MIDI input. What you could try is use Companion or anything that can work as a protocol translator and use that to trigger Playout B commands. But yeah, Playout B is really integratable. Um, it has an open API. If there is anything missing in the API, I'm more than welcome to add more things like the document isn't released yet with the new API, but there's everything in there from like 
uh, incremental increases of volume, audio, and all that. You can change all the clips, volume, in points, out points, all that uh, over the API. So you can interface it to whatever you want to interface it with. Nice. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from uh, Chris Irving in Asheville. And Chris asks, I've had issues with high-resolution live event LED video wall playout losing sync across multiple 4K rasters causing tearing. We've only ever gotten good sync from a single 4K raster. Uh, looking for a rock-solid solution for native res playback. So you're trying to do a lot of big rasters, Alex. Yeah, there are specialized pieces of hardware and software that you start getting into. So what you want is, in the old days, we would say it was a spider. A lot of times now we're using um, uh, uh, disguise is is another one that's that's pretty popular. Uh, Resolume is another one that you want that you that you want to look at. Resolume Arena, and what you're looking at here is these are systems that are designed to go out of multiple projectors across large LED walls. And they're not—they're allowing you to map all the—you know—map the videos over top of each other, or butt them up against each other, but also play those out. Um, you should be able to do it th with things like um, uh, QLab as well. Should should be able to do that with at a frame, a level of frame accuracy. And I believe that Isadora could do some of those things as well. So we just—those are a variety of different options that you have there. But you're looking for something that is not just a playout system, but really. Uh, a system that's designed to put out multiple videos at the same time. And it's, it's part of the, um, whether it's Isadora or Resolume or uh, Disguise, you're going to need something that's really designed for multi-screen or large format uh, playout. And I note in your question, you say native res playback. And I guess in part that would be affected by what the native resolution is. If you have a whole bunch of 4K things that you need to play out, you're going to have much more trouble than if you have a whole bunch of H.264 encoded well, yeah, you by 1080s. Yeah, typically this gets back into really paying attention. You, it, this is where we stop using H.264 typically as soon as we, <laughs> because you know the, that long gap becomes a real problem when you start to tie all those things back together. So, so you definitely want to. Um, this, this is a pretty specialized solution, uh, and you're going to look for things that are specialized for that multi-screen, uh, multi might be multi-screen um, playout. But, uh, but the you know you want to really think about those things. The other thing you have to think about in all of these playouts also is. What are you playing out to and who's going to watch it? Uh, one of the things that we've pushed for a long time is really thinking about 16 by 9 experiences that are sitting on a long screen so that um, because the problem you get yourself into is uh, when you build for the audience that's in the room, this is just another play out problem uh, that kind of extending. But when you build for the audience in the room, you have a problem with the audience online. Uh, how are they going to see what you're doing? And then you end up cutting and giving them a really bad experience of this 32 by 9 or 64 by 9. Uh, image that, and the problem is that that was fine when there was 15,000 people in the room and 300 people watching live. But as it, as now that there's 15,000 online and 100 in the room or, or 100,000 online and 1,000 in the room, you really have to build your play out and presentation for the online audience. And when you do that, you're now moving to, you know, typically you're trying to have your main play out system be supporting a, a, you know, the content that you can watch really needs to sit in that 16 by 9 um, you know, format. And then you may, you, you fake it by having it appear in different parts of a long LED wall, but it's something else to consider as well. Courtney, you had a last thought? Yeah. You're looking for something that has a single machine with multiple video cards so they can map this single 4k raster playback across the video of those four cards simultaneously. And those four cards being in the same box 
will be in sync with each other, and so you won't get the sync issues because it'll all be tied to same vertical sync. Uh, will be all tied together and then the program can map that 4k video across those 4k video the raster of those four 4k video outputs or three or four how many are you using to uh, blow it up to a larger size alex you had a follow-up yeah and a lot of times we don't need to have multiple cards we can have only one card with multiple outputs as well and it's sometimes a lot of times it's easier <laughs> we have the card if the card it's why you see sometimes these quad cards and duo cards is so that i can uh we can push a lot of things out all at one time Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Robert Soji in Los Angeles. And Robert asks, what's the best under $500 hardware-based solution that can playback 422HQ and H.264 into a stream? Jeffrey Power is going to start us off. Jeffrey? Well, you can, uh, you can do something like a Nook or something like that, but you need to have a high-end graphics card. And, of course, using something like uh, PlayLP or, uh, or VLC. But I would highly recommend uh, to uh, check out the M1s that, uh, that are now used and on sale. Like, for instance, I can, you can go to OWC right now and go to their use section, and uh, you'll see a base one for under $500. And, uh, of course, you can upgrade to whatever you want. You'll have to put in more hard drive space if you decide to uh if you need more space of course but uh that uh that that was that's where i would go alex and the big question there will be do you when you say 422 hq the primary reason that you would do hq on a playback would be to get 10 bit and once you own a 10 bit you're in a whole different world of there's almost nothing that plays that out <laughs> so so you have to be really careful of, of what that looks like i would say an educational version of an m1 or m2 now uh, or a used one um, both of those would, would do the, the because H422 is HQ, so you're eliminating anything that doesn't play out a ProRes file. But you're really looking at the 10-bit is the, if, if you are looking at that, now you're talking about Softron, which is a lot more. The hardware is cheap, software is more expensive. Jonas? If you actually want poorly hardware, there is the Hyperdeck Shuttle that, depending on where you buy it, should be just below 500 bucks. Um, it can play out H264 if you use the specific H.264 variant that it wants with the specific profile. Um, they also just upgraded that to have a web interface to upload and download clips from. Or you can uh, use the Hyperdeck Studio HD Mini that should also be just under 500 uh, US dollars. And that also can do H.264 and ProRes. Um, those are the two hardware options under 500 bucks if you don't want to deal with a computer. Courtney? And like I talked earlier, the, if you do want to deal with the computer, these little Windows uh, PCs from Melee, this one's uh, $35 off of $219, so it's under $200 uh, for this uh, Melee Quieter 2, uh, which comes with uh, 8 gigs of RAM, 128 gigs, and a full Windows Pro 4, so it'll run any Windows playback software on it. And... Uh, you can get codecs that'll play 422HQ. I'm not sure whether it'll play it back. Uh, if they, It depends on whether they're optimized for uh, uh, acceleration of the, using the GPU. If it is, then it can play it back. If it isn't, then I wouldn't try and play back 422HQ. You'd be much better off with uh, H.264 or HEVC codecs uh, for 4K if you want to play 4K. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Josh asks, when constructing an edit inside the event from an NLE, a time-saving technique is to play out an end-of-broadcast summary directly from the NLE. 
Uh, when is this a viable solution and when might you wish to move to a dedicated playout device or program? Jonas? It really depends on the format that you use. Uh, so let's say you have a really high quality format, then you might struggle to find a system that can play it out live, but that's also where something like an EVS uh, comes in where you can top and tail and put inserts into from a growing file into a playout, or you would go down the growing file route and hope that uh, the last 10 minutes isn't important and you render it out at that point. <laughs> or vmix um, replay is also one that we have used to like create highlights of an event every time someone says how great the event is we clip it in vmix replay and then you can play out that list um, so like replay systems are also good for this alex yeah every time you attach all your files together it becomes harder to deal with them so a lot of times we do try to get people to send us things in pieces like send us this so that we can stop start insert move around i mean obviously you want the whole piece to be there but if you have some other piece a lot of times we it's easier if you just give us two separate pieces um, so that we can always attach them to each other and let them play through. Um, but if we don't, we, we, we want to be able to have that flexibility. Yeah, some of those high-end systems, Softron and other things, they're working with growing files, but you can get access to them even while they're growing and grab pieces to start assembling highlight reads, reels. That's kind of what they do in sports broadcasts and other things kind of at the high end. They have those kind of capabilities. Let's dive to the next question. Uh, next question is from Samuel Nordvik in uh, in Norway. And Samuel says, I use vMix for video playback to screens in the room and uh, live stream simultaneously, and it works very well for my needs. Good. We talked about vMix being one of the possible solutions. It's great, Samuel, to hear from you that uh, you're having success with it. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What is a good quote-unquote, torture test for a playout system. Uh, what back-to-back -back reaction time and ambient temperature conditions should be taken into account? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alex, talk to us about performance and... Well, so we, I have we, we ha I have a file, or I have a couple files, and we should probably make them... I, I, I don't have any proprietary nature to them, but I just use them. Uh, we, we've compiled some things that, that we use to test, um, to send out, and we... we some of them are what we call Widowmaker um, sh shots where they will not compress well. Um, you know, and so we know that, so what I do is I like to take pictures of the ocean. Since I live in California near the near the beach, I'll take, I have 12K and multiple, and multiple frame rates of just the ocean rolling in with reflections and everything else. And, and I know that that won't ever stream out well. So it's not a matter of, but I know where it should be for most things. So like, where does that break play out? So um, one of the things I do is I have a couple of those things. I have a fan or a, it's a, it was a, like a little wind thing that the, the, they go two different directions because it means that you can't do any predictive motion, motion blur. So, so there's two fans that are going in two different directions when the wind hits it and it creates a very hard thing to compress. Um, so I shoot, I have, I have that, I have the ocean, then I have channel checkers. So I do a lot of stuff in 5.1. So it'll be like, you know, left channel, right channel, center, LFE, you know, or actually LFE is, you know, so you have these different things that are there that tell you where those things are. I then run a sync check. So I have things that are going to, are going to um, hit at a certain sync so that you know you're in sync. Um, I have, you know, we do tone uh, to make sure that it's a clean signal and we, we know where the, where the levels should be. So there's a variety of different, oftentimes some of ours have some version of uh, pink noise. 
um, that we add and it depends on what those things are. So there's a couple different playouts that we do that are checking the channels, checking the sync, checking the ability to compress. And this this is testing the whole system. Oftentimes we're going from one location out to many locations, uh, even if it's not streamed. And we want to make sure it gets all the way out to the end, the end product. And you can find a lot of things that are wrong, channel order problems, um, you know, quality issues, all of those things are, are things that we that we work on. All right. We've had a fabulous discussion today. Thank you, everybody, for participating. Don't forget that we tomorrow. Have, I, I, we have a couple more questions. I, mean, I don't want okay. to. Okay. I, I had an answer on the previous question, but it just yeah. went away. But, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> that I right, use. <laughs> let's go to the next question. Oh. Next. Well, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Courtney, before. I was just going to say that I use for torture testing of the little PCs that I was just showing is something that looks like this. Which is uh, capture screen capture of uh, you know first person shooter video games. So the perspective is changing on nine different images simultaneously, and you can see here that the zoom encoder can hardly handle it, but it's running full frame on the on the little stick PC that this is running on. It's running nine high def videos simultaneously, and I check. I let this run twenty four seven and see if the uh, processor that's playing it back overheats. And then if it does, it'll start to throttle, and you'll see them start to drop frames and lose frames or break up. And so something like that is what I use to torture test those little PCs to make sure that they can handle it without uh, throttling the video uh, after they get hot, which is a, a consideration you have to take into account. All right, let's go to the next question. Next question is from Peter Belbin in uh, Houston. Uh, are there any cases where there's a strong preference towards being able to play out directly via SDI uh, versus HDMI uh, being converted to SDI? Does the factor uh, largely on the playout choices? Jonas. Yeah, so every time we try to do a key fill, that's where you largely want to end up in an SDI native uh, format just because then it's really important that you have the two uh, synced sources, the key and the fill source. Um, for example, there are a lot of tools that do it native. There are not a lot of tools that do it natively. Uh, key fill is still a little bit hard to get. Um, there's the higher end ones. If you use Player B, you can use Casper CG, VMix, or OBS to take the browser output from Player B into it. Um, and then you can use the transparencies from within the video file. We just hand them through uh, OBS, VMix, and Casper CG and have like really nice key fill. And that's what I've used. But yeah, definitely it will affect your choices of what playout system can do it. Then also keep in mind if uh, it needs if it needs to be probably multiplied, that's uh, why we don't have a native uh, SDI output. That's pretty hard in all the different SDKs. But vMix does a great job at converting playout B's uh, transparency into like pre-multiplied for the ATEM and all that. Alex. Yeah, and SDI uh, will be more limited in the number of resolutions and frame rates that you have access to. Um, it's all it's within those SDI, the SMPTE SDI formats. Um, but it, it also, if you're using a Mac, uh, and depending on the software, you may have the infamous uh, orange or yellow uh, dot that will come out of all your HDMI, where it will not do that on an SDI output. Let's go to the last question. Uh, last question is uh, from Douglas Carmichael. Courtney, the Melee PCs look appealing for many applications. Do you know of any mini PCs with serial consoles for server network use cases? And nobody has raised a hand on this one. Courtney, what do you think? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by serial consoles. They're, they do have, uh, all of those do have gigabit Ethernet built into them. You could control them over a serial console or, or com command uh, uh, window in Windows. They all come with Windows 11 Pro. 
So you can also remote uh, use you know remote control over the uh, uh, over win- Windows Remote to get into each one of them and rem- run them remotely. So you can run them headless in that in that fashion since they are Windows 11 Pro. So you do have access to use them as a, in, with servers and and access them remotely as well. Cool. Thank you all. Another show in the can. Don't forget tomorrow, Friday's show, we're going to be talking about the $1,000 studio. So if you want to build something to do something like we do on Office Hours, what would you do? What would your choices be if you were constrained to a $1,000 US dollar budget? Alex, what were you thinking? What was your thinking about this? You know, we we have, we have, uh, we've had, a lot of people are building stuff, whether it's personal studios, professional home, YouTube studios, uh, corporate studios, mainline studios. And those range from $1,000 or maybe less uh, all the way up to millions of dollars. And we're not going to go to the millions of dollars area, but we'll probably go all the way up over the next over the year. Maybe once every couple months, we will go up to about quarter million dollars of so just talking about what do you start adding when you get into this number, where do you start going? Oh, now we need a bigger router. Now we need a bigger whatever. So we just understand what the range is. Uh, under a thousand um, is is constraining to get the real high quality. But what does that take? Do we use web cameras? Do we use regular cameras? Do we use where do we make those priorities and where do we make those choices? So you'll see us ratcheting this up over the year. Um, and I think it's just it really lets us talk through a lot of um, a lot of the different options at different prices. Nice. Uh, don't forget a special thing Saturday coming up in two days, April 1st, 1800 Zulu, 11 o'clock a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. We are going to have a volunteer orientation. Alex is going to come and help those of you who are interested in becoming volunteers, either in the back end or maybe as a potential panelist, whatever you want to do. Alex is going to have a meeting here um, on office hours to kind of and help it's, you get it's oriented. It's me and the team. So, yeah. so we'll we'll be talking about that. And, you know, if you have any questions about it, I mean, being able to volunteering and being part of these teams is a great way to meet a lot of people. Um, it's a great way to learn a lot of things that are there. We've got some pretty interesting people joining the, the teams right now. Uh, and so there's a great way to cross pollinate between different skill sets. And so um, and you don't have to be just working on the show. There's development teams. There's uh, people working on just the organization of all these shows. Um, there's people that we're, we're looking for people that want to do research, that want to do all kinds of other bits and pieces. So there's a lot of different things that are both a lot of hours, not very many hours, uh, more vertical, less vertical. So if you're interested in figuring out what those are, join us um, on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And one of the active, most active groups right now is our NAB team. The The actual volunteer crew, I think, is pretty much set by now, but there will be a lot of other things. So if you're interested in that, hang out in office hours and uh, check the website constantly. Last but certainly not least, our profound thank you to everybody who helps put this show on every single day, our amazing panelist experts. It was a great panel today. Thank you all for your expertise. It was really great to be able to explore this subject and get really good advice. Uh, Our producers, those of you who are viewing and who drive the show content with your questions and your votes on all of those questions, it's a critical part of what we do here every day because we want to talk about what you are interested in and you affect that through your voting. And our amazing behind-the-scenes crew, Um, this is truly a global operation and the production team is literally spread out everywhere in the world and come together to do this for you. Um, Without them, this would not be possible. Final word, After Hours, always open for your questions or comments 24-7. We will be back tomorrow. Thank you for watching. Roll credits.
great to have you here, Jonas. Thank you all for your expertise today. <laughs>